Welcome to AXA Investment Managers CPD, Bulls, Bears and Investment Podcast Series for Investment Professionals. It should not be relied upon by retail clients. This podcast does not constitute an offer to buy or sell any AXA Investment Managers group of companies, products or service and should not be regarded as a solicitation, invitation or recommendation to enter into any investment transaction or any other form of planning. It is provided to you for information purposes only. Past performance is not an indication of future performance. The value of your investments can go down as well as up and you may not get back the full amount invested. Welcome to the AXA Investment Manager's CPD Balls, Bears and Investment podcast, a monthly series looking at different areas of the financial markets. I'm Hardeep Tawakli and coming up on the programme today, Megatrends. More than 35 years after American author John Nesbitt turned the coin, investors today follow all sorts of themes from climate change to robotics, the ageing population to millennials in a bid to generate investment returns. But how do you really know when a megatrend is a viable long-term investment opportunity? Rather than looking at where a company is listed or geographically based, investors should be looking for companies that are benefiting from a trend and still have the ability to grow regardless of short-term volatility that some economies might experience. And while megatrends can give you a hint of what the future might hold, there is always a danger of simply mistaking hype around a subject for a trend. We speak to AXA Investment Manager's Matt Lovett about where megatrends can go badly wrong. I think there is hype and we see hype emerge. You know, we're talking about the short term. I must admit, we talk about themes such as technology influences and we think of hype in the past. We think of 2000 and all of the dot-com bubble and that was very material. Predicting what is going to happen in the future is daunting for anyone. But what if you are an investor hoping to use a megatrend and its story of hypothetical growth in the future as an investment strategy? That is arguably when investors are playing in a whole new ballpark. As many of you will know, megatrends are defined as global macro forces that will transform business, the marketplaces that they operate in, and society at large. John Nesbitt is widely credited with coming up with the term, with the publication of his first book in 1982, titled Megatrends, 10 New Directions Transforming Our Lives. The book talked about how snippets of the future can be predicted from a careful analysis and understanding of present grassroots. He explored a whole list of megatrends, spanning socioeconomic trends and technology, and a whole host of other things that he believed would impact and transform consumers' lives. Many of the trends he listed are doing just that. Take demographics, a powerful societal and economic driver that is already resetting consumer markets and transforming industries from healthcare to property. By 2020, it is said that the spending power of people aged over 60 will reach an estimated $15 trillion, representing the start of a globally applicable wealth shift that could transform world economics. At the other end of the spectrum, however, the millennial generation is growing and could soon be one of the largest in history. We've seen in recent years how this influential group has redefined investing in areas as diverse as finance and sustainability. Of course, demographics is not the only megatrend forcing substantial change amongst investable companies. Technology, infrastructure, socioeconomic movements, the pace and complexity of changes in these areas is overwhelming. For investors positioned correctly along the continuum of these themes, there is the ability to witness and participate in significantly attractive returns. 
But if you get it wrong, it could be an expensive mistake to make as an investor. Joining me today to discuss the intricacies of investing in megatrends is my co-presenter, Nick Lawrence. Now, Nick, the confluence of changes in social values and the environment at large are all impacting the way megatrends are developing and investors' access to them. There is a question, though, as to whether, from an investing point of view, the asset management industry is paying enough attention to them. Hi, Hadi. Well, yes, it's such an interesting space because megatrends are an amazing growth part of the market. Even investors with no specific interest in megatrends will often find themselves researching areas of the market that are being impacted by one, like demographics, for example. So this underlines the impact a megatrend can have on a sector without investors even realising, and it shows why they should be forming part of the investment selection process. The number of thematic fund launches over the past decade, I don't have any figures to hand, but there's been a small number of technology-focused funds that have uh, arrived, those looking at the long-term impact of demographics. I can also name a couple in the biotech and healthcare space as well. Uh, they're becoming really popular now. They are, and you can see why some managers are increasing their focus in this space. You know, we're talking about the new economy, and it's very much about investing in the future and for the future. But it's important to remember that investing in a megatrend on a short-term basis is unlikely to have a meaningful impact on investors' return expectations. Because what we're talking about here are secular megatrends which can only provide huge tailwinds when invested on a long-term basis. Let, let's go through that a bit further and, and, and let's go through a couple of examples. Well, let's take technology. This megatrend has radically disrupted a number of sectors over the past decade alone and in a number of different ways. The evolution of things like computers, artificial intelligence, the Internet of Things, these have all contributed to the tech revolution. A part of the market that's benefiting from this megatrend is mobile banking, and it's predicted that by 2020, over 2 billion people will be banking in a mobile way. That's only two years away, and we're talking about a significant part of the global population. So it's huge, but it's taken several decades to reach this point. Absolutely. Closer to our own industry, we hear more and more about the automation of financial advice too. Um, I saw a report from Credit Suisse recently that said uh, robots and technology could actually help reduce the number of calls coming into the bank's compliance call centre by as much as 50%. That would be a massive step change for financial advice. It would, and the World Economic Forum has also described 11 key clusters of technology innovation that are putting pressure on the financial system value chain and are likely to cause material changes to the way the world conducts its financial transactions. So in the investment management sector, digitalisation and automation are really leading the empowerment of investors through customisation and access to markets. On the surface, these sorts of reports and analysis are certainly ringing true. I mean, I only ever check my bank statements and my bank balance on my phone, which is, I can't be doing with logging into a desktop anymore. Um, and I use, make use of all the platform apps to monitor my investments as well. So I'm experiencing or at least helping technology as a mega trend to grow. When investing in these themes as a fund manager, is there a danger they could end up extrapolating a vision from today and placing it in the future? But in reality, it doesn't end up happening. I guess I'm talking about buying into a trend's hype. Yes, hype is always dangerous because, you know, trying to define your vision of the future and then ensuring that happens, well, that's next to impossible. So we look back at the 2000s and the dot-com bubble to see what happens when you buy into the so-called trending hype. Was it all hype? Well, there was, of course, truth in the Internet of Things trend in the early 2000s, but ultimately some of the actual company growth was not very material. Some valuations were built on hype, and when it fell apart, 
it fell apart quickly and people lost a lot of money. This is something that is often the case with megatrends. That you can get companies with overextended valuations at various points. Ex- exactly. And company growth has to be placed in perspective of, of how um, uh, said company is actually performing today. And importantly, with megatrends, investors need to look at the growth of that trend over a specific time period and relate that to the company's prospects in the future too. So valuing megatrends, or perhaps analysing the longer-term value of those companies exposed to megatrends, is is pretty difficult. Is that at odds with investing, which for many people, whether they want to admit it or not, can be very short-termist? I think the average holding period for a stock is something like six months globally. Well, patience is definitely key with megatrends. I think it's interesting that some of the megatrends we refer to today have actually been around for decades. And if we take secular trends like globalisation and urbanisation into account, these have been around for centuries. Although some companies exposed to megatrends are innovating constantly as they react to changing markets. You you spoke about tech a little while ago, Nick. Um, Tech companies particularly are really quick to adapt as soon as market changes occur. 30 years ago, mobile phones were only just starting to make waves amongst a wider population, and today a huge percentage of people all over the world own smartphones, which obviously do a lot more than just make calls. That is as a result of technological evolution and has helped smartphones become cleverer and more efficient as well. Sure, the technology changes have been fast and companies have had to move quickly to keep up, but the wider trend of consumers embracing this technology has taken time to play out fully. Historically, investors viewed the world based on sectors. But with megatrends, we are seeing a lot of multi-sector growth. Um, Something like Amazon, I guess, is a great example of that. Is it a tech company? Is it an online retailer? Is it a grocery shop? It's got loads of other business additions to it in there as well. In cases like that, where megatrends are concerned, are sectors becoming somewhat irrelevant, do you think? Rather than looking at where a company is listed or geographically based, investors should be looking for companies that are benefiting from a trend and still have the ability to grow regardless of short-term volatility that some economies might experience. So you mentioned Amazon, which is arguably one of the greatest tech startups of our time and one that has continually innovated to ensure it remains relevant today and in the future. But when describing Amazon today, should we still call it a technology company? Is it a retailer, a logistics company perhaps, given its web service distribution? The sector definitions are much more integrated. What do you think are some of the most interesting megatrends that are likely to make their mark in the coming years? There are so many, I think, and the rise of multi-sector megatrends are creating a mass expansion in this space. So the rise of uh, green tech, which 30 years ago you rarely heard about, is today seen as a competitive alternative to fossil fuels. Um, At the other end of the scale, technology is helping to fuel a rise in flexible working. This prospect of uh, more and more people working from home or working flexibly means there's likely to be a gradual reduction in individuals' carbon footprint. So technology in a range of ways is giving us a chance to decrease emissions and do our bit for the planet. Who would have really talked about that a decade ago? Absolutely. Um, You mentioned demographics as as a megatrend as well earlier, Um, and and that's another huge part of of this sector, um, driving growth for all sorts of companies. There are so many different elements in this demographic uh, scenario, from a growing number of people over the age of 60 living longer and having more cash to spend, 
um, and also the ongoing development of a, the emerging markets and the demographics associated with that. Yes, it's been forecast that a billion and a half people will move out of poverty and into the middle class over the next 12 years. That's a huge shift in wealth that is going to impact on the growth of companies that can tap into that trend. Corporate companies have got to start thinking about and in many cases anticipating these changing demographics. So the question should be asked, can some companies who always target a younger consumer base start selling their products to a 60 or 70 year old who will have more disposable income as they live longer? Or should they start marketing towards the rising middle class in emerging economies as they enter a new wealth bracket? In a lot of cases, that answer is yes. You did mention earlier that megatrends requires patience. Actually seeing a company benefit from the impact of a megatrend like an ageing population, like the rising middle class, um, changes are very rarely immediate, I'm guessing. Absolutely. Even in terms of technological revolutions and the number of new startups that we hear about, it can take these companies a lot longer to prove their commerciality. We are going to leave it there, I think, Nick. Thanks so much for joining me in the studio here. Now... Keeping with the megatrends theme, we're going to hear from Matt Lovett, Global Head of Business Development at AXA Investment Managers. Matt reveals in more details the type of companies that have captured his attention when it comes to megatrends and why he believes China might be the next megatrend world leader. Megatrends, what are they? Yeah, so when we think long term, we have to look at businesses. There was a a piece of work done by BCG, uh, this was about three, four years ago, BCG did an analysis and they looked at the structure of holding periods for companies in market. So if you were to hold a company for a year, what really drives the mm. company's success? And no surprise, multiple yeah. is the most important thing. So timing your decision into the market becomes a very important decision if you're thinking on a one-year view. If you're thinking about a 10-year view, what drives the company is about 70, over 70% of the returns accumulate from revenue growth, top-line growth, i.e. market share. So we have to think, when we're thinking long-term, we have to think about that long-term perspective of companies, and it's about market share growers. So our mindset is always to focus on market share growth. And when, you, when you're thinking that long-term perspective, sometimes there are big secular growth trends around in the markets. I think more recently, in the last five years, I think the world is, investment world, for all my kind of almost 30-year career, has talked about demographics. Yeah. But right now, it's really in the focus of our, uh, both investors, but also corporates. Mm-hmm. So the way these kind of bigger themes are playing out is it feels like they're happening right now. Mm -hmm. So demographics is one. And the other major sort of trend we look at is the implementation and adoption of technology. Mm -hmm. So technology has been evolving rapidly, but feels like it's really biting. And that by by what I mean by that is the adoption Mm -hmm. of both consumers and industry to technological changes is really fast. So there is a real material pickup in that. Well, you mentioned demographics. Can you put a couple of numbers on that? 
just to give us some sense of what, so what we're talking there about. There are two big demographic yeah. trends that we look at, I think, that are important. One is ageing, and I'm probably the uh, youngest baby boomer around. I think officially it cuts off around my... Your birthday. <laughs> around my birthday. Um, but the, the growth in ageing population is very material. Yeah. So that economy is growing rapidly. Mm -hmm. By 2030, or by 2020, sorry, that uh, economy is going to be about $15 trillion. Mm -hmm. So the ageing population, the 60-plus age group, will have $15 trillion to spend. So that wealth shift is massive, and it's happened in Japan. It's happening faster across Europe, actually, Italy, Germany, uh, but increasingly in China and increasingly in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So when we think about it, we've got to think about what a corporate's doing and our corporate's looking at that wealth shift and that longevity economy, that I call it, is becoming more and more material. Is there a danger that you end up extrapolating your vision from today and sort of putting that out into the future and the two, the reality and what you think reality is diverge quite spectacularly over time. Yeah, I think there is hype. Uh. And we see hype emerge. You know, we're talking about the short term. I must admit, we talk about themes such as technology influences, and we think of hype in the past. We think of yeah. 2000 and all of the dot-com bubble. Yeah. And that was very material. Um, but there is a point, I think, where it gets beyond hype. Um, early stage adoption of changes in industry are often not very commercial. Mm. If I take one example that's been around, had capital flooded at it for a number of years, is 3D printing. Mm. What an amazing concept that digitally you can uh, express a desire for a, a product and it be printed at a local manufacturing. It's a huge potential business because we're talking here a reversal of all of the offshoring trend of yeah. the previous 20 years. Mm. So this would be local manufacturer where you need it almost at point of sale yeah. and revolution. Huge amounts of capital chased it. No one's ever really made much money in that industry. Mm. So we've sat out from it and thought, actually, we need to wait for it to evolve. So in technological change, I think we think of two principles. One is it often takes longer to prove commerciality in a, in a technological change than you expect. Mm -hmm. So be patient. So yeah. 3D painting will be impactful. I'm not saying it won't be impactful. It will be impactful, but maybe we just need to wait a little while before we see the commercial evidence. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is once it becomes commercial, actually it affects far more customers than you ever expect. So those two things are, are kind of principles we think about with technology, which become quite important. Is this any different from the theme funds we've seen launched in the past? But at this time where everyone's getting very excited about the companies of the future, what does this mean for valuations? Yeah, valuations are, you know, that's where you get the hype occurring in, in companies. You can get slightly overextended multiples at various points in time. So I think you have to watch valuation quite carefully. I think you always have to put it in perspective of how the company's growing. Mm. So as I said, we're looking at businesses in this space where you're seeing market share growth, top line growth, revenue growth. You've always got to think about the, mul the multiple in context of that growth. So you can see you know, uh, multiples 20, 30, 40 times, but at the same time, you, know, that you can see there are companies 
emerging in, this, in these areas that are growing 20% a year. You know, the, the multiples contract massively when you get that amount of increase in the earnings base. So context of the growth and the perspectives for what the company can achieve are very important. But yes, it can happen. We can get overhyped and we have to be careful. Are megatrends any use at all to a, an income investor? Because you've been talking, this is very much as a growth, uh, growth phenomenon. Um, I'm talking more about revenue growth. I'm talking mm. more about market share, which instinctively, I think, in the longer term is where you want to be. But income can be important and can be an important part of these companies' evolution. So over time, there will be moments when those companies are quite happy to release capital back to shareholders in the form of a dividend. It doesn't mean it doesn't happen. I divide up the world into what I'm calling about these themes, these demographics, into what I call a new economy. So the new economy where technology and demographics is moving a lot faster. So I'm talking about growth rates in this area of maybe 10 to 30% growth. Mm -hmm. In that new economy, I looked at creating what that universe looks like. It still yields me 2%. Mm -hmm. So it's sub-market. Mm -hmm. And in the old economy, as I call it, what you know, many of the more traditional businesses, we might be yielding over two and a half. So you're getting a, a more of a premium. So younger businesses don't tend to pay a dividend, but it doesn't mean that they don't. I suppose one thing we've seen with particularly technology companies, they can get very, very big and take these huge dominant positions. We think of the likes of, sort of Apple or Microsoft at yeah. the time. Is there a size beyond which a company just can't naturally grow? It just gets too big. Yeah, their ability to get this far has been extraordinary. We had a, a talk from one of the Googles, uh, head of their European business, yeah. and he said, essentially we look at innovation, because these businesses are born out of innovation. We look at innovation, and they try and center it around the individual. Mm -hmm. So if you, Mark, were a, a talented uh, creator of some vision that Google are interested in, They'd let you run your business from wherever you wanted. So if you were based in a penthouse flat in Copenhagen, you can run it from there. We'll get a couple of guys to support you. We want you to free think. So, so, you know, companies are adaptive in how they do research. They don't have, you know, they might have a kind of HQ where they're yeah. thinking about the ideas, but they often think about creativity a different way. So that ability of companies, so Google will invest huge amounts in yeah. people and their ability to create and innovate, and they'll use them the best way those people need. So they're quite smart about adapting rather than having three million uh, researchers yeah. writing programs in some building in Silicon Valley. Yeah. You know, their creation is using people from around the world and using it in a smart way. So, so I think those companies' ability to innovate is, is their key thing. So as you look out over the future, is this about new or newish companies like Apple, or can existing companies evolve into this new world? Yeah, and I, I think that's what's really interesting. We're seeing companies change. You know, there are many companies out there talking about their digital strategy and how they adapt to a newer world. But there are some that are really, really doing it. I'll, I'll point to a couple. Philips Healthcare. Philips that we know of and love for our CD players or our Walkmans or our... Yeah, light bulbs our and things. Eight-track yeah. stereos. Always been innovators. Always focused it around electronics historically and light bulbs. Mm -hmm. 
they've divested most of that electronics business. They've moved themselves and acquired businesses in CT scanners, healthcare diagnostics, and have become Philips Health Tech. You know, actually, they've done it over a period of 10 years, but really, in the last three years, they've evolved their business. And they're moving. And so it's not just about the new, the, you know, the brand new business, mm -hmm. the, the creative entrepreneur that's got some amazing uh, bit of technology or something that he's applying in the world, or the big monsters that are the, you know, the much bigger companies. It's also the old economy, as I call it, adapting and moving in and changing. Siemens is another interesting one because, you know, traditional industrial kind of business, but 20, 20 to 30% of their revenues are now about their software sales. So they're selling software into automated factories and factory of the future, as we call it, uh, where software is really driving a lot of industry. Mm -hmm. So businesses are moving. And I think that's a big uh, business line because the old economy is going to be a pretty challenging place to be in the next 10 years. Do you see any evidence that China will become a world leader in some of these megatrend areas in the future? Yeah, I China has adopting... China. Um, there's a company called Medea in China, which is an uh, industrial giant that bought the German robotics manufacturer KUKA a few years ago. Now, KUKA has been one of the lead developers of what we call collaborative robots. So, you know, robots used to be in a big aerospace factory or auto factory behind a cage. Don't go near them as a human because they could kill you. Yeah. So they're behind a cage and they're operating on heavy lifting, heavy industrial processes. I think the robotics companies now and KUKA have been one of the, the big developers of this have moved into collaborative robots so that you and I could operate together. If I'm the robot and I, if you come anywhere near me, I just slow down right. or stop because I've got sensors on me which are effectively vision systems on the robot. So the robot's no danger anymore. So all of a sudden, this opens up a massive plethora of opportunity for robotics to mm. apply to different industries rather than just auto and aerospace. This is a big change. And the, the acquisition by Medea of KUKA mm -hmm. has led to some suggestions that the Chinese are really trying to build higher quality industrial product. They've got a program going on called Made in 2025, where they're trying to raise the quality of products and industrial processes in China to a much higher level. Medea and KUKA um, are going to be very much part of that. So, I think for sure Chinese innovation, particularly in industrial processes and robotics, mm. is a massive opportunity set. What is the growth potential around robotics? So we, we look at it in terms of just, if, if we look at the pure industry of yeah. selling robots, mm. which is a part of the industry and a significant part of the industry, but there is more to it than that, and I can maybe come on to that in a minute or two. It was running at about a 5% growth. Mm -hmm. And that was, as I say, largely driven out of auto, aerospace businesses. I think the, in about 2015, that, there was an inflection point, and it mm -hmm. started to grow about 10 to 15% a year. So you're seeing that kind of growth now, and that's accelerating. Because it's accelerating use, we had an event where we had a robotic barman. Mm -hmm. 
Now, you think pouring a glass of beer really nice and simple, yeah. which it is for a, a robotic. Yeah. The, the guy can keep doing it all night. But the interesting thing is when the robot passes you the beer, mm-hmm. think of the sensory systems that are in place on its robotic arm yeah. as it hands it to you. It needs to make sure you're not going to drop it. So as the weight lifts out of it, mm. it, it first of all can see you where your hand is, so it's pointing towards you. Yep. But it also knows when you've got a grip of it because it can feel the weight lift mm. and it records the weight right. and then will let go and let you take the beer. Mm. So, you know, there are sophistication in these systems yeah. which are quite extraordinary. And it's that's, that development is, is a big change to broader industry. But what are the implications for people and jobs. We're living in a period where there's a lot of worry about the lack of GDP growth out there, just in the round. Um, does this vision of the future, does that make it easier to get GDP growth? Less easy? It's all at the hands of central banks. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think some of the changes we're seeing here as a result of the kind of darker mm. times we've been through in the last 10 years, and. And the reality is it's hard to generate growth now. Mm. It's been harder. And part of it is we've sort of had this sort of dysfunctional world. So for some time, China was going great. And then while Europe was suffering and then the U.S. started to pick up. So it's all been a bit um, unsynchronized. It's becoming more synchronized. So this year, I think we're starting to see more synchronicity and GDP Mm -hmm. being a little bit positive. So it's harder to grow, and therefore I think companies have had to be more efficient, smarter in the way they do it. So I think the evolution that we're seeing is, you know, robotics ultimately is about more efficient factories, which is going to be a good thing for industry. It's going to stand it in better stead longer term to generate um, more profitability and more opportunity for people. So I, I, I think all of these thematic changes are things where it's an adapting society so societies you know my use of my iPhone now has just increased exponentially over the last five years and now it's become a reliant system for me I I need it to find out what's happening in my life and increasingly I think that's becoming the norm so we're changing we're getting the benefit of a better lifestyle so I don't have to think so much because my iPhone's doing some of it for me. But increasingly as, as society adapts that way, I think it becomes more efficient and we can grow. So I don't think I think the the growth in the economy is more likely to drive out of this new economy than it is out of the old economy. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the round I think we're moving in the right direction economically. Matt love it. Thank you very much.